All right, HCC, it's great to see you today. How you doing? You are one week from Christmas. On the one hand, I was like, yay! On the other hand, I was like, oh, snap. I got some stuff to do. But we're excited. You heard on all of our campuses today the things that are going on around HTC in this next week. Man, we'd love for you to be involved. Love for you to think and pray about who can you invite? Who from your oikos, your relational world, could you say, hey, join me. Let's, let's do this thing. And just want to demonstrate this great opportunity to relish in God's gift to us in the person of Jesus. So a great season. I'm a Christmas geek through and through, so I love it. I love these videos each week in our series, we've kind of gone into this great winter cottage and looked into this window and what's on the other side. And today we'll explain in just a few minutes that whole scroll and temple thing. What's that all about? As we dive into another narrative about someone from Jesus's heritage, someone from Jesus's family line. And we're looking at these characters, not because they somehow make Jesus better, Jesus is already the best, 100% God, 100% man. There's nothing that can add to who he is based on who he came from. But what our series in December has all been about was looking at the lives of three characters, one a very unlikely addition, the other a shepherd boy who was willing to trust God in smaller things and ultimately stand down a giant. And today we'll look at a king who was willing to go to God in prayer rather than take it into his own hands and defend uh, a nation of people. All people who took a small step of faith and in doing so saw a huge impact from their actions and their ability to trust God. What we're wondering about in this Christmas season is what is that for you? What is that for your family? That's that thing that you're staring at that God's asking you, would you take a small step of faith and trust me? Trust me and watch what I do. Even though your faith might not be massive, it might only be this much, take a step forward. Trust me and see the ripple effect of how God impacts not only you, not only your family, not only the people you get to influence in your relational world, but even using that for God's redemptive thread. And so we're so excited, excited to dive in today. If you have a Bible, would you make your way to 2 Kings chapter 18? Bit of an obscure book. We don't always look to 2 Kings and the story even more obscure. Sadly, one that we don't make much of. It didn't make it to the flannel graph of many of our Sunday school days. And if you have no idea what flannel graph is, that means you're under 35 and that's totally great. Um, you, we would make a VeggieTales allusion to you. Um, but we're excited to dive in and kind of see this story. And, and today I'm gonna do something I love doing. I'm just gonna let the story teach itself. And I got reprimanded a little bit last night. It takes a while until we get to point one in your notes. Don't freak out. I, some people talked to me and said, Todd, you took so long to get there. I was thinking, man, we're going to be here all night. Let me reassure you, not going to be here uh, overly long, but just track with me because it's my, my desire today. Let's just lean into the story. Let's just let the story come off the page and let's see this incredible way that God delivered and God worked in powerful ways when a man went to God in prayer rather than going, I gotta have a plan. And so I'm so excited to dive in. So get your notes ready, 2 Kings chapter 18. I don't know how your week was. I hope it was great. But for me and Joanna, we celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary this week. And so very excited about that. 
God has so blessed me with this wonderful woman. And so anything you would just do by applause all goes to her because she's been putting up with this for a long time. So, so grateful for her. And I haven't, I've forgotten to welcome everyone and welcome you, especially here in Victorville. For those that are joining us in Apple Valley, big welcome to you. Those in Hesperia, I hope you're having a great day. And those in Phelan, a big welcome to you as well. So let's dive in and let's see what this is all about as we unpack this narrative of Someone from Jesus's family line who took small steps of faith and was willing to trust God for something big. We're gonna talk today about a king, a king named Hezekiah. And it's really important that you understand which Hezekiah we're talking about, not this one, even though I like to talk about that one a lot. Uh, He hit six months on our anniversary this last week. So just becoming that big boy that's so fun to play with and engage. So that, not that hezzy. Let's talk about a different one. We're in 2 Kings chapter 18. We'll pick it up in verse one. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, watch this, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept his commands the Lord had given Moses and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. Now what's so powerful to me, Hezekiah might not be at all a familiar biblical name to you. And we're gonna see a story today that's powerful in so many ways about a guy that the Bible has just said was the ultimate king of Judah. And yet we're like, who? Like we don't even know his story. What's powerful about the narrative we're looking at today, in many cases, kings of the Old Testament show up in the book of First and Second Kings and their stories in the book of First and Second Chronicles. That's relatively normative. But this narrative shows up in the prophet Isaiah's book as well and actually serves as the hinge. Up until then, there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of doom. This narrative, and Isaiah has barely any narrative at all. This narrative shows up and the book changes to a story of hope. So this is a big deal. And like I said, it's, it's sad to me that this doesn't make it enough into our Christian narrative world. So sit back and we'll dive into a story that we don't know much about. Out of the gates, we hear about a guy who follows his dad, follows King Ahaz, who is one of the worst. Look at the way that second Chronicles identifies him. The Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, King of Israel, not bless them, For he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. Look at this next verse. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He was already bad enough. And when challenges came, he and the nation went even further away from God. We're gonna talk about a son who does just the opposite today. And actually in the time of great need, himself and the people draw closer to Yahweh. So 
King Hezekiah comes on the scene and there's a lot of challenge from the very beginning. You'll note one of the first things that we read is that he tore down the Asherah poles. He tore down the altars to pagan gods. He had a lot to undo before he could ever move forward. Isn't it interesting how many of you can relate to that? God, I came into the world and in wanting to live a life, once I came in contact with the gospel, wanting to live a life, I had a lot from my family line I had to undo and live opposed to in order to live for you. Hezekiah lived that life and he lived in such a way that was so dedicated, not only to bringing reform to the people, but you noted he himself was devoted personally to God. It's not just, I wanna be a good king. I wanna be a good politician. I want to be a good follower of Yahweh. And in doing so, I wanna lead people towards him, not distracted away from him. So this is this king that we get to look at and get to unpack today. Now, the next part of chapter 18 talks about the king of Assyria. Assyria is the nation that Jonah refused to go to, its capital city being Nineveh. This nation was a nasty group of people. They were vicious warriors, and they were on the war path. They had, in the earlier, this next part of chapter 18, taken out the entire northern kingdom of Israel. They were the final hammer blow that God had been forecasting. If you don't repent and return to me, judgment is coming. God uses Assyria to be his hammer. And that nation is on the border of Judah waiting to come south. Hezekiah does something that allays them for a time. You might think of it this way. If you've ever seen a mafia movie and there's that guy Sal on the corner that you pay money for protection. It's like, Hey, if we give you stuff, will you leave us alone? And that's kind of what he does for a while, but then he stops. And then the reality of the next part of chapter 18 picks up. Verse 17, the king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road of the washerman's field. They called for the king and Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. The field commander said to them, so give your king a message. Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you only speak empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses. If you can even put riders on them, how can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Watch this. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from Yahweh? The Lord, Yahweh himself, told me to march against this country and destroy it. 
So let's track this. And before we get into the narrative, let's keep remembering something. These representatives don't represent a foreign threat. They represent the world dominant power who has just destroyed Judah's brothers to the north. This is not just, oh, this could be challenging. These guys are imminent, they're on the doorstep, and they have just completely decimated all that they have known as these distant brothers who lived in Israel. This is huge. And it's those representatives that come to Jerusalem and make these brash allegations and threats. He says, hey, if you're depending upon this group from Egypt, Pharaoh and his people to come and rescue, let me tell you what he's like. He's like a staff and you put your hand on and all you get is splinters from it. It's going to go bad. And if you think that you can muster up the forces that you need, you can't even put people on 2,000 horses if I gave them to you. You guys are a mess. You're a wreck. You're completely ready to be destroyed. But of all the threats that this field commander makes, the last one's the greatest dagger. He's just said before a lie, by the way. He said, hey, Hezekiah comes through and he heard secondhand that he smashed all these altars. He thinks that he's done that somehow, the altars of Yahweh. They were in no way the altars of Yahweh. They were to pagan gods. So this guy doesn't even have his facts straight. But in it, he comes to what may be perceived as an additional lie. He says, hey, I wouldn't have even come here unless your God told me to. Now that makes us go, huh? Since when does Judah's God tell another nation to come and wage war against them? That, that must be another lie, like this last one that he told. Well, we're gonna talk about the prophet Isaiah a little bit today. And what's fascinating, Isaiah's book has so many great prophecies related to Messiah, related to Jesus's birth. And one of the most known of all comes from chapter seven, goes this way, 714. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. We'll call him God with us. This is the time of year we say that word a lot because we love to lean into the fact, God, you didn't just stay far and away from us. You broke through into our world, entered into our stuff so that you could deliver us. We get all excited about that. But only three verses later, chapter seven, verse 17, the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. God told this unique prophet to the land of Judah well in advance I'm going to bring the Assyrians to come and judge you. God told the king of Assyria, go and judge my people. Now I've just told you, and if you remember much about your kind of Old Testament here, history, you know Israel and Judah both struggled. Struggled with keeping the covenant that they had made with Yahweh all the way back in Deuteronomy. But the reality is that God's gonna use a horrible, wicked people named Assyria to come and judge his own people, what? 
And if that's causing you tension, causing you confusion, even dissonance today, can I tell you, join the club. I remember sitting in a seminary class and having a professor walk this out and just being like, God, I, I don't get it. And I wanna tell you, I've said it before, how does your church is a church you can come to when you don't get it? Because there's a lot of things about the Bible that don't have a quick try answer. But I do wanna say this, this is a powerful thing to remember. Every nation that came against Israel and Judah didn't come because God told them to. Often God would allow the nations around them to come against them so that they would reach out to Yahweh and pray and ask for his deliverance and lean upon him and see him do amazing things to grow their faith, to grow their dependence. And then other times he brought nations like Assyria to come and judge his people for the consequences of their sin. What's fascinating is we fast forward into the New Testament we read Paul's letters, we read in James, and we realize nothing is different for us. Oftentimes, God will bring challenge, he'll bring trials into our lives for the goal of helping us develop dependence upon him, reliance upon him, so we will be ready to trust him for even more. Developing perseverance in our spiritual lives. And other times, God simply allows us to experience the consequences of our sin. So the reality on a grand scale, the reality in the Old Testament is just as true in the new. This happened to be one of those times told to the prophet Isaiah, I'm gonna bring Assyria for judgment. Let's see what happens next. Chapter 18, verse 26. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the field commander, I think they might've said it this way, please, please, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. We get that. We understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. Don't speak in our common language that they all understand. Let's translate here. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and to you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall? He's like, no, no, no. I want them to hear this all. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, the native tongue, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life, not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save this land from me? How then can the Lord, can Yahweh deliver Jerusalem from my hand? 
This guy is brash. And these threats are right in the face. And you'll note three times this field commander says, do not listen to your king. Do not listen to Hezekiah. He cannot save you. And he calls upon these elements of having no military force. He entreats them, come out and make peace. Good things are on the other side if you will trust us and we'll put you in a land of plenty. And do not lean on Hezekiah, don't trust him. And he makes this powerful statement. Where are the gods of the other nations we've mowed down? And you know what? If the people of Judah and if King Hezekiah put their trust in statuettes, tried to do a lot of religious ritual to get that God to do something for them that was no God at all, man, they should go out and make the pact, make peace right away. But this wasn't the case. These are the people of the living God, of the one true God, and this was being tested. This trial was right in their face. I think about that as we even think of the Christmas narrative. I think of the things that Mary had to trust an angel for when he said, God is finally bringing long-awaited Messiah. And he's doing it through you, teenage girl. I think that would have been incredibly hard to wrap a head and a heart around. But you know what I think was equally difficult? Was this guy that she was pledged to be married to. And an angel comes to him at night and says, hey, this woman that you're pledged to be married to, God's one of a kind son is in her. Care for her, bring this son into the world and then take her as your wife. And I'm thinking if I'm Joseph in the morning, I'm going, did an angel see me last night or was that just the burrito I had at dinner? Because that's crazy talk. But when your God is not a God of ritual, he's not a God that if you rub the right way, he'll do for you. But when he is the one true living God, it creates the ability to trust him for things only God can do. And this was the tension, this was the reality that they were living in. Read on, chapter 18, verse 36. Then the people, but the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had demanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah and the palace administrator and Shebna the secretary and Joah, son of Asaph the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Closed torn represents devastation, it represents dread. And they had done a great job. They kept a stiff upper lip in front of the field commander, but the minute they came into the palace and talked to the king, they fell apart. Then we flip into chapter 19, verse one. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes. He did the same thing. He responded with deep desperation and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. So he's going to send a message to God's unique mouthpiece, the prophet Isaiah. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. 
as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, <clears throat> excuse me, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant, <clears throat> excuse me, that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, he already had a message for them. Tell your master, this is what Yahweh, what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he, the king of Assyria, hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with the sword. With the threat, the imminent threat of foreign attack, Hezekiah reaches out to this unique person that God has planted in the kingdom, this prophet Isaiah. And he says to Isaiah, the times are so dire. And he uses this powerful illustration, the idea of being at the edge of birth, all the labor pains, all the contractions, and you're right at the edge and have no strength to go any further. I will tell you, I have never experienced this, but I've been in the room four times when my wife has, and it is dire. I cannot go on. Isaiah sends back a message and says, God's very well aware. He knows all the blasphemous words that this field commander has said, and he's got you. He's going to take care of it. On the one hand, I think that's got to be powerful to hear back from God's anointed spokesperson. But on the other hand, what was the essence of Isaiah's message to King Hezekiah? Wait. No angelic army. The ground did not open up and all the army of Assyria fall into it. Simply trust me. I've got this, wait until you see it completed. Man, if there's something you and I can relate to in this story, I think there's a lot, but this is sure one of them. God, I am praying, would you bring relief? God, I'm praying, would you deliver? God, I'm praying, would you do something only you can do? Rarely, if ever, that prayer is answered with yes and now. Sometimes it's answered no. And sometimes it's answered yes, but it's coming. This is what Hezekiah heard. Yes, but it's coming. And in that moment, what you do in that space says so much about you and about me. In your notes, for you and I, we need to have an ongoing reliance upon God as we trust him for the circumstances that he's aligning to provide for our care and provision. We need to have this ongoing reliance, dependence upon God as he is aligning. In our time, it's do it now and let's be done. God's timing is I'm working out something way bigger than you can see. 
Remember how Hezekiah's first order of business was clearing out the altars, clearing out the Asherah poles. He was taking God at his word. He knew that was obedience. David, God was protecting him from bears and from lions as he's caring for sheep long before he ever stood before a giant. God is doing things today to prepare you for what he's preparing you for tomorrow. You aren't ready for tomorrow today, but you are ready for today. And that's what these words are. God, will we trust you? Will we rely upon you? Chapter 19 goes on to say that the king of Assyria does relent just for a season, but then he gets his head back around and he says, nope, I'm coming back for you. Sends a field commander to say all the same things and puts it on a scroll, on a, on a letter. And then we pick up the story, chapter 19, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord, spread it out before the Lord. You saw that in the video. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Listen to this prayer. Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, So that, watch this, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. This is one of my favorite prayers in all of the Bible. And so for three simple reasons, Hezekiah begins, and I don't think he's reminding God of who God is. He's reminding himself who he's talking to. You, Yahweh, are the creator. You alone are the sustainer. This is the God I'm talking to. And God, it's true that the Assyrian army has demolished nations, but nations whose gods were statuettes of wood and stone. I'm crying out to the living God. And look at this powerful thing that he says in crying out. I'm not crying out for my well-being, for my family's well-being, for our nation's well-being. I'm crying out for yours. Would your name and renown, your reputation among the nations be lifted up because you respond to the way these people are blaspheming you? Sounds a lot like David's approach to a blaspheming giant that we looked at last week. You're defying the God, not not the Israelites. You're defying who their God is. That's a problem. And Hezekiah has this posture that he recognizes who he's talking to and he calls upon God. I just wanna ask you this thought-provoking question in your notes. How often are our prayers focused primarily on how God is seen? On how God is seen to be powerful and good versus our need to be rescued from something difficult? I find Hezekiah's prayer to be so encouraging and yet so convicting at the same time. God, deliver. God, rescue. Period. 
But like Hezekiah, God delivers so people would see who you are. God rescues so people would know who you are by what you do. This attitude is so thick within Hezekiah's prayer. And I want to draw you not only to Hezekiah's prayer and what he did, I want you to also notice what he didn't do. We don't have any record that when he reads of this scroll that he meets with military advisors and begins to get a game plan. We don't have any record that he began to muster up the fighting people of Israel to be ready to go to battle. We don't have anything that says, let's get the family together and figure out our safe house. None of it. He went to God first. We have an interesting way of rationalizing that. Okay, we've got a dilemma in front of us. What are we gonna do? We're gonna make a plan. We've got an interesting challenge in front of us. What are we gonna do? We're gonna go get advice from wise people. Hey, we've got a plan. We're gonna make a list of pros and cons. And I wanna tell you, every one of those things is a very wise thing to do. Second. But never wise to do first. A quote that I remember hearing probably almost 30 years ago. I've kept it close to me. It's from John Bunyan. He said this, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. You can do all kinds of things after you have prayed, but you can't do anything until you have. And all of those good ideas of seeking advice, building plans, making pro-con lists, we can tend to do that at the front end and praying becomes second, third, fifth, 18th on the list. And what we end up saying in essence, God bless my idea. God bless what I've put my hands in already rather than saying no plan not gonna start with my great thoughts because they're often not great. Gonna start with you. What do you want? How do we proceed? Reveal to us our next step. That to me is the staying power of the story of Hezekiah's prayer. In your notes, how much are we doing before we pray rather than going to God first as our only hope and refuge? This to me, if we boil down the story of Hezekiah in this narrative, that's his step of faith. Not gonna devise the military strategy, going to take a step of faith, go into the temple, lay on my face and say, God, please. That small step of faith, as we'll see today, had amazing ripples and impact. King Hezekiah is actually gonna get an answer to this prayer through the prophet Isaiah. Further in the chapter, verse 20. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, what Yahweh, the God of Israel says. I have heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him, against that king. Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you have ridiculed the Lord. Because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. 
Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it. Watch this, for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. I didn't read you everything about Isaiah's response, his message to Hezekiah, but I read you the parts that especially demonstrated God is completely in control. In the moment when the world seems most out of control, and I'm gonna say this, you and I, many of you know this, I know this, but in the middle of it, I'm incredibly forgetful. God, it's all falling apart. God, it's not gonna work. God, we're not gonna make it. And I just wanna remind you something, this is the power of stories like these, is they remind us of the God that we love and the God who loves us. And this is why we need friends, why we need brothers and sisters that we do life with to remind us of what we already know but can't remember because all we see is the trial, all we see is the army, all we see is the devastation. We need help to remember. And Isaiah is Hezekiah's help. God has this. And look at the reason why God says he's going to deliver about his reputation and the covenant he made to Hezekiah's ancestor, David. Second Samuel seven, your house, he said these words to King David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God made a promise at the fall in Genesis three to send a snake crusher. God told Abraham, it's through your family line, I'm gonna bless the nations. But God said specifically to David, on your throne, from your family particularly is going to come the Messiah. That's why we get so excited about Christmas. It's God making good on his promise. He did it then, he continues to do it today. We've reached this incredible climax in the action. We've seen the conflict, we've seen the dire desperation. We've seen Hezekiah respond the way we want to. But how does it end? It's fascinating, it's only three verses. And it all brings it together. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyria camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adremelech and Sherazar killed him with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat and Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. Everything God said completely came to pass in ways that never looked likely. No army from Judah was ever assembled but an angel with the power of death supernaturally came and the Assyrian army was killed and turned back. 
I don't think in Hezekiah's frame of how God's gonna figure this out, if he even believed the words that Isaiah came back and shared, this is what I'm gonna do, I don't even know if Hezekiah had a category for how God was gonna do it. But that's the beautiful part. It's not up for us to weigh in on the how, it's us for us to trust the who. God, you've got this. So simple question for you as we wrap it up today. What is it for you? In your notes, what is that small step of faith that God is asking you, asking your family to trust him for? Inviting you to step forward and believe that he is trustworthy. What is that thing about family conflict that always erupts in the holidays? What is that thing about finances that just keep being this gray cloud over your life? What is that thing about the health risk and fear that you have for you or someone you love? What are the challenges that you as a parent are raising with, with kids and teenagers? What is that thing staring you in the face that God is inviting you? Would you take a small step of faith? Would you trust me and would you find me trustworthy? This is how families of faith change the world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today so encouraged by the story of Hezekiah. Thankful for his faith. Thank you for the way he looked to you before he built plans. And thank you for the way you delivered him and the people. And God, for us, we all have at least a thing, if not things that are staring us in the face. Things that you're calling out to us. Would you take a step of faith? Would you take a step of faith and believe me when I say that I've got you? Believe me that I say I love you. Believe me when I say I'm preparing you for what's to come. Father, this, <clears throat> this has been the stuff of this series. You're week by week calling out to us. Would we take that step of faith and find you faithful? You may be here today and honestly, that step of faith is actually the first step of faith. You've heard about God, you've known of him, but you've never responded to the invitation that he makes to someone who loves you so much that he sent his one and only son into this world, what we celebrate at Christmas, who would go on and live a sinless life, who would die a sacrificial death at what we celebrate at Good Friday and then raise supernaturally from the dead what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. He did all that for you. You were on the mind of Jesus when he was hanging on a cross paying for your sin. So the simple question is, will you take that step of faith? Will you step out and will you, A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior? Would you, B, believe that Jesus is the only savior available? And would you, C, choose? Choose to put your confidence and trust and faith in what he's done, living the rest of your life according to the example that Jesus left us. You can make that decision today. No classes to attend, no hoops to go through right where you are in any one of our four campuses. 
And my prayer is you would not let another moment go by until you do. Father, this week, bring to mind not only the thing you're calling us to trust you for, but God, give us the grace to take a step. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.